The Facebook pixel is looking at data 24 hours a day on literally billions of users across millions of websites in real time. They are going to beat me 100% of the time. My goal is not to micromanage the factory, mm-hmm. but to make sure the employees have the best chance for success. Welcome to the Coach You Show, where we learn directly from Dennis Yu and special guests. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I am so excited today. We have someone who is on the inside on Facebook ads, who's one of the top 100 disruptors. He's driven several hundred million dollars in revenue off of Facebook ads. And he's going to share with us, because we're friends for many years, what it takes to be able to scale a business and econ. Let's say you're only doing a couple thousand dollars a day in spend. What are some of the things that you need to do? Welcome, Charlie T. Hey, man. Thank you so much for having me, Dennis. I, I appreciate it. It looks like it's a happy day there in Vegas. Los Angeles is also pretty good here. I got to say, it's good to see you, man. I like that shirt. It looks good. Yeah, man. I, I love it. And I love hanging out with my friends who are successful and are happy to demonstrate how they've done it. That's the whole point of the Coach You Show is experts like you and i've known you in the space i want to say for nearly a decade which is rare you see we see a lot of people come and go i've had a, a peek at your master class too to be able to see the training that you've done and it is so cool for those of you that don't know charlie t he was one of the first to get inside access to lead ads to things like cbo to have a seven figure daily budget on facebook ads man what the hell is that like that is, um, it, it can be somewhat nerve wracking, but also really rewarding. You know, uh, when you keep hitting zero that many times, like it gets a little tense, but it's, it was um, very, very, you get to learn quick when you're at that scale. And I'll tell you this, uh, it was a blessing that I, I, I don't wish on everybody because you do need thick skin to get there. Yeah. But when it happens, you just view the world in a totally different way. You get to move mountains and, and you stop yeah. worrying about the pebbles and you really get to escalate your your uh, your business. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, it can be a little nerve wracking. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> For those of us that are only spending a thousand or two thousand dollars a day, what do you see as the most common mistakes that prevent them from scaling? Yeah, I think for folks that I would call at the one thousand or two thousand dollar range, you're not quite at that million dollar a year run rate. Probably the biggest issue that I see is an architectural issue around what they're trying to do with their Facebook ad account. Mm-hmm. Most often they're making one of three mistakes. One, they're trying to accomplish too many business objectives. They haven't picked a lane. They don't have a, a tripwire offer. They don't have, as Ezra will say, their boomstick, whatever it happens to be. They haven't maximized the value of their best business asset, And so they're leaving opportunity on the table to chase other ideas. You know, you can do one thing well or five things poorly. Um, another thing that people don't do very well is I think their testing methodology tends to be way more trial and error, hit or miss, and way less incremental value. And the third thing that I think people really struggle with is they don't build themselves for evergreen delivery. They try to find this short win and this short win and this short win. And ultimately, Facebook's a machine learning platform. It's designed to build on the back of a lot of data. And every time you try to reset this machine, you start over again and Mm -hmm. you end up working way harder than you need to. Honestly, the harder people work, 
tends to have a very inverse relationship to the success of their ad accounts. You have to solve with simplicity. The more yeah. complicated you make things, the harder it's going to be, the more time you spend and the less money you get. So let's talk about point number two, where you said people are doing trial and error instead of having an architecture. What does that mean? So one of the biggest things that I try to teach people, especially in their testing methodology, is to make sure one, that you understand from a very core element that Facebook is a, there's no different than anything else. It's a scientific method platform. So you have to understand what's my hypothesis, what's my expected outcome. On top of that, people don't necessarily have the budget or the or the, the awareness to see a test all the way through. If you don't have the budget to understand that test to a completion of statistical significance, it's going to be really difficult for you to be able to take one lesson and apply it to someplace else. Another thing is the organization of your testing. You might have a hundred percent confidence that thing is going, this test is going to improve your business by 2%. Is that more or less valuable than a 20% confidence on something that could double your business and being able to organize which one of these swings you want to take. At the end of the day, small incremental gains can be helpful, but a big swing where you win. I, I had a job once, a client where he didn't want me to win more than once every 90 days because it meant I wasn't taking a big enough swing. And to be fair, he had a seven figure monthly profit target and five million uniques a month. He wasn't cared about the small wins. A small win was a rounding error. And the last thing is documentation. If you don't know what won and what lost and why it didn't win or lose, I have very little confidence. You're not going to make the same mistakes over and over again. Right. So how do we structure our campaigns now, given that Facebook's a smart machine learning system, given that it's not one-off offers and it has to be evergreen. So talk to talk about how important is it to have 50 conversions per ad set per week? Sure. Yeah. I mean, when we're talking about the learning phase, for instance, Part of what the learning phase is, is Facebook telling you it has confidence in delivering a consistent result. Now you might have really great performance on day two and three of an ad or an ad set or a campaign, and then it drops off on day four or five. I get this question all the time. Like Facebook only works for a few days and have to keep starting over. Right. The problem is you don't really know if you were successful or not, because you never got to a place where Facebook said, I can deliver you a consistent result. If you can measure a consistent result and project that outcome, then you can test to improve that outcome. If you can't measure it, then you can't improve it. And so that having, getting, leading the learning phase is fundamental. And one of the biggest things that I recommend to folks, and I've been teaching this for years on the back of the Bombas case study that we did in 2017, and that's a while ago now, but anyway, Bombas, great company, uh, it was proving the validity of having a broad, and a lookalike ad set inside of one campaign and you set and forget and you just consistently update the creatives and your ads but you don't constantly change where you're investing and that way facebook gets smarter and smarter the dollars you spend today inform the decisions made three months six months two years from now and when you set yourself up to basically hire and train employees which is the way i think about ads and ad sets I don't want to keep firing somebody every three days or every 30 days. I want to keep that person on for two years. And when you build around the idea of long-term gain, I've got ads that have been running since I built two, three years ago that have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars that are still good. Yeah. And I think that that's fundamental in your architecture is keeping spending as much money as you can 
in as few places as possible and only making changes when your confidence is high of that change being a net positive for your outcome. Right. When, so tell us what is the ideal campaign structure? In my opinion, when it comes to, for instance, conversion campaigns or lead gen or whatever, an ideal campaign structure to me is I work off what I call control ads and control audiences. Proven winning elements that are projectable, stable, and reliable. So I might have a control campaign that has a broad audience, age, gender, location. So I'm not paying any premium for that inventory. I'm solving the problem on a quantitative solution. The broadest audience possible. I'm getting the lowest CPM with the most infinitely scalable inventory. Mm -hmm. Then I'll solve qualitatively. So I'll have a lookalike audience built around one or two business objectives. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's all my previous buyers and then, you know, some purchase objective for that specific product or whatever, whatever is the value to me. If you can make a, what we call a stacked lookalike of two or three business objectives, mm-hmm. that'll make a nice little Venn diagram and Facebook will prioritize the overlap as a priority for your delivery. But then you only have two or three places to spend. One that mm-hmm. is super cheap where you're playing a volume game. Another one that is slightly more expensive at your base rate of your inventory, but is qualitatively better. Mm-hmm. And then you have the option of letting the machine choose. Do mm-hmm. I want to reach a whole lot of people at a low conversion rate, but a much higher volume? Or do I want to have a much higher conversion rate, but much lower volume? Mm-hmm. And honestly, I've spent millions with something that doesn't look too much more advanced than that. What I'll often do is set those two pieces and then maybe I'll test like an interest group or another like a 5% or 10% lookalike. And what happens is that thing that plays in the middle doesn't get any spend Mm because I basically solved both ends of the bell curve. And it is more work for me to manage the play of trying to add in a third or fourth or fifth option than it is for me to be able to let that be so that I can take my time and solve something more important like landing page testing or managing my creatives or getting a better offer or working on customer service. An incremental gain of a third or fourth or fifth audience in your overall revenue per day is genuinely not worth it at scale versus solving something else that's a more global issue. So back to campaign structure, you're saying within a conversion objective campaign, you're having multiple ad sets, Mm -hmm. one broad, one or two lookalikes and maybe a custom audience or two. Yeah, generally, I don't go for much more than that. And one of the things you'll hear missing in there is retargeting. I don't really heavily focus that much on retargeting for most of my campaigns. And the reason is because Facebook is already doing that for us. When you go broad, you're saying reach anybody possible. And Facebook is going to focus on their business objective, which is keeping somebody on the platform for as long as possible. The average person swipes the height of the Eiffel Tower on a daily basis. Your job is to keep their attention and make it and monetize it. Well, the person that added to cart yesterday is probably a higher quality impression than somebody that's never seen you before. So your broad audience is going to do that retargeting for you anyway. And as soon as you go omni-channel, you can make your Facebook ROAS look great but it's from a sale that also happened on email or on search or maybe multiple channels. So while your Facebook ROAS looks great, you're going to have a total number of conversions today that is way more than your finance department actually saw in revenue. And then you have attribution issues. You have all this headache. 
And I'd much rather avoid the headache and solve bigger problems. I don't need mm -hmm. Facebook to look good for my business to look good. And I can scale a business on a negative, on, on a less than one Facebook ROAS because my model allows me those other advantages. Are you willing to scale on, let's say it's your business or a client's business, on less than a one ROAS if you know that there's unattributed sales that are flowing into other channels or there's totally. a higher LTV? Totally. And, and how do you account for things like iOS 14? But what, what have you noticed in terms of maybe less sales or attribution or changes in the algo? Yeah, so first off, 100% willing to. If you're breaking even on Facebook, you're not spending enough. That, that's, that's an opinion of mine because there's I at agree. least one sale that's not there. And at the end of the day, if you're at the point where you're spending a couple thousand or more, you probably have a business model where you are making more, you're making less, like you are not relying on 100% of your revenue coming from that first Facebook sale, right? Maybe you sell the first thing for 20 bucks, but that customer on average is worth 150. Yeah. Like I scaled a brand um, where we were starting out at 8,000 a day at a two and a half. We got to 30,000 a day by running at a 0.8 because we focused on the LTV as our customer acquisition cost target. All we had to do is break even on that. And we were scaling to the moon. Also, with your question about iOS 14, we know that there's more and more data that's not appearing in the UI dashboard. Mm -hmm. However, that doesn't mean that those sales aren't happening. It also doesn't mean that the Facebook isn't seeing those conversion events. And a big way of pointing to this is look at the total amount of events that occur in the events manager versus what's shown inside of your dashboard. You might see 12 sales today in your dashboard, but 72 in your events manager. It just means it's not able to attribute it, but that pixel is firing over and over mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately- What do you do to account for that discrepancy? Do you just accept a higher CPA? Yeah. Or a lower ROAS? And here's, what degree do you, do you change that? Here's what I do. I don't care. I know it's inaccurate, but I know that level of inaccuracy is fairly uniform. If it's 40% off, it's 40% off every day. My job is to make that 40% off number more effective. For instance, what I've been doing for the longest time, about six, seven years now, is I measure to a one-day click. All I need to do is make that one-day click number more efficient. If I know that that's 80% of sales or 20% of sales, if I can make that better, that means I'm flooding my store with higher quality traffic of a better quality customer. And that means I'm getting more and more sales that are happening after the fact. Plus, if you're letting Facebook drive you a higher quality customer, the downstream impact on the rest of your ecosystem is magnificent. When your bounce rate is lower because your traffic is better, your SEO goes up. When the people that sign up for your email address are high quality customers that are legitimately interested, your delivery on your email goes up because people are opening because they're interested. You're not hitting the spam right. folder anymore. That's right. Your cost per search goes up. Your ability to test your conversion rate is much higher on landing pages because it's all quality traffic. So what I'm focused on more than anything is accepting whatever platform tells me is their version of truth. And I have to make their version of truth better. And the downstream impact off of that is almost assuredly positive. Charlie, how do we triangulate between Facebook ads, Google Analytics, Shopify, Events Manager, Google Tag Manager, and all these other conflicting sources? Sure. What I do, what I've been doing for a long time is, is I, I call it a scrum doc is what I use and then an ecosystem ROAS. And honestly, I learned attribution from an old boss of mine who was a vice president, Gutting Renker. 
And her attribution model was five minutes after the infomercial. So she didn't care about pixel data. It was spend by channel. That was it. I literally could not give her pixel information at all. It was not anything that she was going to accept from me. So what I ultimately had to do was understand if I spend more here, does that lift my performance? And so ultimately the way that I enact this at a deeper level is if I'm willing to accept my attribution model is a one day click, there's going to be overlap. Sure. But the likelihood of somebody clicking on a Facebook ad, hitting a search ad, opening up an SMS and an email and clicking on all of them fairly low in one day, in a week that could happen across the board. Right. So I just accept each channel as their own version of truth and try to make each channel more efficient on that one day click metric. And then if I improve that channel, but my aggregate business performance does not improve, then I know that channel is not incremental. And that is fundamental to the bottom line is understanding the incrementality and contribution by channel. And, you know, I have, there's one business that comes to mind where I saved them $30,000 a day in display because we realized that, uh, those marketers were not bringing incremental volume to the business. And that was a million dollar a month decision. That's massive. We talked briefly about remarketing and how most of the conversion optimization, if we choose conversions as the objective will come through broad and lookalike, then what do we do with email and web custom audiences? I mean, I love them. And I'll say that for this, what I'm talking about is the core of the, of the architecture, whether that's 95% or 75%. It's generally my most reliable place. That being said, I think every good rule deserves to be nudged every now and again. And a lot of times, especially once you're hitting limitations on your ability to scale, it becomes finding those little incremental places where you're kind of bending the rules a little bit, but you find extra value. And really maybe that, you know, customer audience lookalike isn't something that helps out in the blend, but when you isolate it on its own, you're able to focus some money to that thing for a specific mm -hmm. business objective. And that is where I find the biggest help. Additionally, it's wonderful for exclusions. I think that's a really big, okay. big piece. You know, if you have a tripwire offer mm. and you don't want somebody to take advantage of it repeatedly, don't let somebody that bought it once see it again. So are you saying then in general, you don't use remarketing audiences? In general, I don't rely on them. I would say most ad accounts I have, or most of my students, they do have them in isolated positions for very specific business objectives. Right. For instance, I'm a big fan of using dynamic product ads and e-commerce stores for remarketing. I think that's mm. huge. Mm. Mm. Um, but I value that remarketing against a one day click metric. And right. I'm very, very keen on making sure that I'm measuring the incrementality of that remarketing effort. Right. Bottom line is a lot of people teach remarketing because it improves your ROAS, which is mm -hmm. great platform level. But if I'm not seeing additional revenue in my store, then it doesn't matter. That's true. And, and I think while I, while I'm saying these things about remarketing, if you prove incrementality to your business, there's no reason to turn off good money. Mm -hmm. And so these are loose guidelines for 80% of advertisers, 80% of the time. But every business is different 
And I'll be the first to say, there is no silver bullet on how you're supposed to do everything. Right, amen on that. So you've been focusing mostly on conversion as the objective, whether it's a tripwire or a core offer or an add to cart or something like that. What about top and mid funnel objectives? How does that play in? I think top and mid funnel objectives are really interesting. I think it's hard for businesses with a smaller budget I'll, I'll, let me qualify this. If you're in the meat, in the, in the, in the standard bell curve of that $1,000 to $5,000 a day space, probably the majority, if not all your money should maybe go to conversion objectives. There is added value though to, I do a lot of testing at brand awareness campaigns so I can measure brand lift, estimated action rate and overall clickiness of my, of my messaging. Or, you know, there's a great thing of pushing, you know, you talk a lot about, you know, pushing videos at, at, a, at a low budget. And I, I, I'm doing that myself. We were just tweeting about it yesterday. I was like, yeah, I, I, I'm doing a little bit more than a dollar a day, but I absolutely believe in it because there's something about above and beyond just pushing the sale, about getting, getting uh, ubiquity and trust in a marketplace. And something that I learned a long time ago was now, this is a lesson more from a political angle, but basically the more often people see you, the more people trust what you have to say. And you can be the smartest person in the room, but if you're only talking to two people out of a thousand, you're never going to sell three products. And I'd much rather open myself up to being visible to everybody than to whittle myself down to just the folks that that conversion campaign thinks I can sell to. Because the end of the day, a conversion campaign is a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's based off the data that I have. If I don't introduce new data sources, I'm eventually going to deplete my ability to truly meet incremental value. And I think that that is fundamental. We keep talking about incrementality. That is what it's all about. So for goal driving conversions, how often do you choose the conversion objective? with conversion content versus engagement content or educational content that maybe still has the conversion objective? Or maybe do you stack it where you have like a testimonial and, and some interesting entertainment piece of content and then, then it goes to conversion? So how, how do we mix driving engagement or education with conversion? Or do we just go straight for the sale? And the con what I'm trying to distinguish is content that's about the conversion versus choosing the conversion objective and do they go together or do we have engagement content and the conversion objective or engagement objective and engagement content or just conversion conversion no i, I love it and, and i think from a paid perspective i tend to focus the vast majority of my media on conversions i'll also say this that is not a hundred percent but i also know that very few places is my very few situations are will hold true that my conversion objective content is the only thing you'll ever see about this product or this service type for instance i won't drop too many brand names so because that can get a little tacky but let's just say i was working on a very large athletic wear brand we didn't need to tell you that sneakers existed if you're in the room if you were in the market for red trainers i didn't have to tell you hey there's this thing called a shoe and there's this color red. It's awesome. You might like it. All I needed to do is be there when you were looking to make that purchase. And because of advanced matching, a whole other part of the Power Five, Facebook knows that you've been on five of my competitors' sites. 
looking at red trainers and I just need to be there. So where I find there's the value is if you've maxed out your potential to take advantage of the opportunity in the market as it exists, you need to invest more and more into finding that incremental uh, attention. However, I think very few advertisers are at a spot where they've capitalized on the available attention that they could sell to right now. And um, so if you're going to go that route, I will say this. It has been hard for me to quantify the lift from doing multi-touch stage marketing and everything else over just going for conversions, unless I'm at the five, 10, 20, $30,000 a day level. Right. Because what about using lead ads to be able to collect emails and remarketing from email to a sale? I love, I love lead ads. Um, I mean, I was on the intro for lead ads for a, uh, very large international uh, car brand back in the day. And we did a case study about, can you use lead ads? My, my bright idea at the time was, can we use lead ads to set up test drives for the new car? We ended up getting test drives for 15 bucks. I don't know if you know what they pay a car salesman to That's sell a car, yeah. but $15 to put somebody in a car, pretty good mm -hmm. conversion rate. And now that became a standard yeah. thing that happened, you know, a lot of places. It's, I, I don't get to toot my own horn that often, but I'll take credit for that one. Yeah. Okay. I love lead ads and the ability to generate interest and the ability to get people into your ecosystem. And what I'll say is this, if you're much better at email and phone conversation or face-to-face -face, than you are at making a Facebook ad, lean into your strength. Your conversion might be phone calls. So mm -hmm. making a million Facebook ads, trying to tar target and making somebody to buy today could be a complete waste of your money when you know, put me in a room, I'm going to land one out of 10 people. All I need to do is get you in enough room. Yeah. yeah. Talk about what industries you see are really popping right now or the ones that you're working with. Yeah. I mean, I think as far as product verticals, I think that we're really seeing a big boom in SaaS. I think that that's phenomenal. Um, the honest truth is I feel like more and more businesses are embracing electronic business. And SaaS companies are a bridge for folks to be able to access things. Um, and I think there's a great opportunity there. Uh, I've been working with some brands that are doing tremendous numbers in that space. Other verticals, I think the culture of direct to consumer, I've had a big, big debate with some of my colleagues around this is like, is that something that is ultimately a mainstay or is that a fad? And at the end of the day, I think what direct to consumer businesses are, is the corner store in your neighborhood, but you can pick to live in any neighborhood and get to any corner store to get any product you want. If it's fancy dog food or this cookie company that sends you milk along with the product or nice shoes or whatever, whatever the thing is, whatever it is that you nerd out about, mm -hmm. I'll bet you there's 10 or 15 people that are producing a product that can give you the feel of going to your friend buying from them and that relationship is ultimately i think going to be a death nail for the larger consumer footprint in uh brands uh and and you know to be completely honest i think where we're seeing decline in mall culture is getting completely taken over by the direct consumer culture and the internet is that you know what levels the playing field for everyone so i think those are the some of the two biggest spots that we're seeing a lot of people come into um, and now by vertical, I think there's an opportunity for anybody. 
You know, I live in Los Angeles and one of the lessons I learned is no matter how unique or special you think you are, there's 10,000 people within five miles that are exactly like you. Hmm. When you run a business, that's phenomenal. Because what does yeah. success look like for your business? Do you need 50 sales a day? If you need 50 sales a day, there's enough people probably in your country for you to run a business on for a couple of years before you need to really expand. I mean, that's, you know, what, 15,000 sales? Something like that? That's a that's a lot of sales. And, and that's not completely unreasonable to expect to get 15,000 customers in a country of 200 million people. So you mentioned SaaS. What are some of the strategies that you see are working for SaaS companies? Sure. I think what's really working for SaaS companies, the companies that I see that are doing things really well share three common factors. Number one is they're selling the experience more than the features and benefits. Bottom line is I'm coming to you because I know the problem you're going to solve. Mm -hmm. Can I work with you? It's a relate. Ultimately, most businesses relationships. And if you're going to work for the SaaS company, that's basically an employee. But it's software. Can you use it? It might be the best software in the world, but if you can't use it. It doesn't matter. Another thing that I find that they have in common is really well curated onboarding experiences. I worked with one SaaS company, um, this actually the company that I was talking about before with the 5 million uniques and the seven figure monthly target. We tested 30 second onboarding and 10 minute onboarding. And what we found was making somebody sit for eight and a half minutes where they had to engage a little bit. And we basically played them a video, but they felt like numbers were flying around in the background and all sorts yeah. of stuff was happening. The conversion rate of somebody that sits eight and a half minutes is so much better than the person that comes in after 30 seconds. And because of that, our SEO ranking shot up. Our, our SEO sales quadruple in a space of like 90 days. Huh. Because our bounce rate dropped dramatically because our stickiness was fantastic. It's eight minutes long. You did that through Facebook ads. Yeah, we did that through Facebook ads. Yeah. And then ultimately SEO became almost 90% of our revenue. Uh, it was, it became it crazy. Like it literally four X in a space of very short amount of time. What objective did you choose? Conversion. We did a conversion objective with a, uh, about halfway through, there was a registration slide. And we tried it right up front where you give us your email address, but you can't pay yet. We uh -huh. tried it right in the middle and we tried it at the very end. And we found was putting it towards the middle of the experience. Somebody's like, okay, I get to engage. Here's my email, whatever. Our conversion rate on that pathway was a little bit less, but it meant we got your email. And our email channel was able to close that loop more effectively at conversion rate across the whole business. And honestly, I stole that long form from a really, really great um, apparel brand subscription company where you could check out in two minutes, but they make it so it feels like they get to know who you are. You're sitting with a salesperson kind of feel and it takes yeah. almost 15 minutes to make your order. But they're LTV on those customers is magnificent. And it's because you emotionally buy into the product and you does, get- Does it only work on high LTV products or experiences? I think it does help when the LTV is longer. I think, especially when it comes to SaaS companies or subscription model companies, if your LTV is long, if, if that customer stays with you a long time, 
then you're really building your business, not on the customer acquisition costs, but on the ability to keep that business for a long time. And one of the biggest things that we see as a pain point for longevity of the relationship is an understanding and appreciation of the product or service. So a very long onboarding, I'm overcoming every objection you could have. I'm walking you through everything that you might get excited about. By the time you see an email or something, we're gonna be talking about other stuff. When you're 15, 20 minutes into a conversation, you're already sold. Like you're just waiting for, to, to throw the, you know, we, we used to joke about throwing credit cards at people. Like, what do I have to do? So when I walk in the room, you're gonna throw your credit card at me. It's not gonna happen in 30 seconds, right? With the dollar, <laughs> it's not gonna happen in 30 seconds. You might yeah. get someone excited, but everybody can take a test drive, right? You wanna get people excited? Say, hey, free Lamborghini test drives to anyone. Put that outside of a college campus. You're gonna get a thousand test drives and sell no cars. I don't care about that. I don't care about that at all. Lamborghini, not a client. So I'll, I'll drop there as an example here. Um, I don't know if they have too much of a DTC business, but I don't think they need it. No. Uh, but I don't know the reason. But the bottom line is getting that emotional buy-in, which basically on the onboarding flow is the exact same thing as we were talking about with the dollar a day video strategy you teach. You get that buy-in. So by the time somebody walks into your store, they already know what they want. Their credit card is in hand. They're ready to buy and they're sold. And those relationships are phenomenal. I know so many people that are losing money with a vendor, but will stick around because that relationship is good and they're willing to see it through. Yeah. So you mentioned there are three things for SaaS businesses the experience, the onboarding, and what was the third piece? Yeah, the third piece. Yeah, we, we kind of got sidelined for a second. I'm glad you got that. <laughs> I like it. I'm a little too ADD. I appreciate you. This is great. Yeah. The, the third piece that I think is fundamental, and this is for any business, is your customer service. Your customer service, I think, is something where people overlook it dramatically. But I can tell you, if your customer service is good, your drop rate on a client is going to, I'm, we used to measure customer service success, not by the amount of sales that they made, because that's great, but mm -hmm. about the amount of cancels they were able to turn around. Mm -hmm. If you can pay for yourself by keeping somebody that wants to leave from leaving, they're likely to stick around for longer. So maybe they're with you for three months and they want to leave. You overcome that objection. They might stay for four or five. In addition to that three, that's way more effective than trying to make the sales a customer service team. And I can tell you, in me personally, I ordered some direct consumer apparel stuff. I got some underwear from a great from a great brand. I wanted to try it out. All right. Came in the wrong size. I went to the website. I was like, hey, I tweeted about this too, so you might know what I'm talking about. But I, I went to the website. I was like, hey, I ordered the wrong size. They texted me because I chose that option. Yeah. This guy texted me. He was like, hey, I'm so sorry about that. What was your order? It's like, I don't know. And he's like, click this link. It'll tell you the order. Great. Took a screenshot of it, sent it back. He's like, awesome. Don't even bother sending it back. Here's here's a uh, you know coupon for your purchase. It'll be available in like 30 seconds. Here's a link for you to buy what you want. If you want to get it in the right size or anything else. I clicked the link. I made the order. I realized, you know what? They're running a sale right now. I actually, he raised my AOV by about 20 bucks. <laughs> and if that product is any good at all, knowing that that's the customer service, I'm going to subscribe. And so that customer service agent probably paid for his hourly rate by closing me for that extra 20 bucks or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever his paycheck is. And very likely made a long-term LTV play for that business. Mm. And, you, and then other people that hear about that too. So there's a spillover effect besides. Oh, just absolutely. LTV. 
Yeah, I went to my Twitter immediately and was just like, this is the greatest customer service I, I've had in months. Like, this is phenomenal. And it legitimately helped. And in addition to that, when we're getting down to just dollars and cents, yeah, a lot of advertising platforms, now Facebook most credibly, but a lot of other ones, will penalize you if your customer experience is bad. Explain that. So if you do not deliver the product in a reputable way, or if your customer service is really busy and negative, Facebook, for instance, wants people to have a positive experience. So if your ads deliver a negative experience for the end user, or if your customer service relationship is something that Facebook sees as a liability to their business model of selling eyeballs for profit, then they're gonna charge you more money. Mm -hmm. Every page has what they call an advertiser score, a page score. A good page score is in the upper fours. If you're below a two, you're not even gonna be able to spend money. That's right. Now we talk about cost of inventory, about how we want to, how much we want to pay. Now I'm a, not a big fan of CPM. I don't, I don't make decisions on it, but it's a good canary in the coal mine and health check. Mm -hmm. If your score is at a 2.5, you might be paying two or three times the CPM for the same exact ad to the same exact audience as if it's a four and a half or close to a five. And I've directly seen the impact of, oh, we got artificially flagged. We went to a 2.8. Our advertise our, our CPAs jumped 70%. They got it fixed overnight, went right back to where it was. And it's about being a good partner mm -hmm. to your business partners. At the end of the day, you're giving Facebook money, they're giving you attention. That is an exchange, that is a relationship. There are real people on the other ends of those dollars. And if you don't respect those people or the platform, don't be surprised when that platform stops respecting you. It's just a mutual relationship. Respect your business partners and you'll be in business for a long time. Mm. It's amazing, Charlie, what you're saying in modern day Facebook ad scaling is around strategy mm -hmm. on taking care of the customer, handling cancel, service, operations, the onboarding, the experience. It seems very little to do with the technical, tactical, mechanical components of optimizing Facebook ads of 10 years ago when we first got started. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, it used to be day trading it. The honest yeah. truth now is the machine is smarter than all of us. Uh, I, I'll, I'll give one data point for a second. Yeah. The Facebook pixel is looking at data 24 hours a day on literally billions of users across millions of websites in real time in a machine designed by hundreds and hundreds of engineers. Well, they're a lot smarter than me. I don't know about you, but they're a lot smarter than they I They are. Am. Yeah. They are going to beat me 100% of the time at their job. My goal is not to micromanage the factory, mm -hmm. but to make sure the employees have the best chance for success. Then my goal is to run my business. So while I'm a Facebook ads guy, my number one thing that I try to teach people is how to make Facebook something that man that takes you 90 minutes a week, maybe an hour a day, a couple days a week. So you can spend the rest of your time improving your business model because a bad business model is going to fail all the time. And a good business model can succeed even if you do everything wrong. I can't tell you how many people are spending a couple thousand dollars a day doing everything wrong and still printing money because their business model is fantastic. And the algo can overcome the mistakes that people are making in spite of them targeting the wrong way or choosing the wrong way. Yeah, just stop messing with things. Let it do its job and you do your job and things are going to work out. Hire people better than you at everything you're not good at. Facebook is better than me at choosing where to put that impression. I learned that five years ago. 
So what do you say, Charlie, to the business owner entrepreneur who they've started to scale, they're a thousand, two thousand dollars a month. They've been running the ads themselves just because they haven't delegated it out or haven't found someone they trust to do that. Sure. But now that the machine is able to optimize and it really is only 60 to 90 minutes a week, how then do they get other people and processes in place so that they don't have to worry about running the machine anymore? Yeah. Putting into the machine, getting content, collecting feedback, UGC, that kind of thing. Yeah, I love it. And I think that systems and processes is the real secret to successful businesses. I mean, if you have a good system and process, you can walk into any business and make it successful. And what I say, the recommendation there is one is document everything and prioritize transparency and accountability over what I consider to be vanity metrics. Mm -hmm. I'd much rather somebody tell me four out of five days that they screwed up mm -hmm. than somebody to come tell me that they did a good job. We learn a lot more from our failures than we do from our wins. Um, if I do everything right, then I'm not moving forward. Mm. Um, and I think prioritizing that is what I've seen in my own experience, what the good businesses have in common and the bad businesses have in common is that infrastructure. And so I have a few documents that I always try to put people through and it's a big, you know, part of programs and I'm training for folks, but I generally build things around a few types of documents. One, I've got a shared reporting platform that measures every platform I'm spending money on. So I'm able to understand my contribution to the margin by channel. I also will have a log of all my optimizations and all my testing. So I don't have to make the same mistakes. And so other people can learn from the mistakes and the wins. I also have something in place so that I can document all my automated rules, all my business rules and all my assets in the, in the market. Like what's out there? What ads are people seeing? Um, and who's accountable to making sure that those things are good. And in addition to that, one of the biggest things that I do is I have what I call a testing roadmap. I want to know what the next 30 days looks like the next 45, the next 90, what am I testing? What do I want to learn? What am I willing to sacrifice? And what's my investment? If you know what the next three months looks like, you're going to be really un. You're not going to care if tomorrow's a good or a bad day on Facebook. And if you can rise above the dopamine hit of the daily hitting refresh on Ads Manager and actually start building a business, mm -hmm. one, you're going to be way less stressed out. Two, you're going to see way more success. And ultimately, what I try to do in working with folks is put more money in their pocket and more time into their day because that allows you to change your life or change the life of others, provide opportunity. And at the end of the day, I think that for me, that is what lets me put my head on the pillow at night and feel good is, is that's what I'm giving. Cause I didn't have that. I got dropped in a system where nobody knew what they were doing because Facebook, it was a PPC platform trying to compete with Google. Yeah. And, um, Nobody was there to tell me what to do. And I've made a couple hundred million dollars in mistakes and I'm glad to try to help people save time. Um, and that's, that's what I can do to try to give back because I think that's really important. So Charlie, for content production and editing and collecting content, what's the right process to think about? What's the right way to think about content? How do we actually do it? Yeah, I think that's, you know, I, I will say this as far as production and acquisition of content, Every business might be different. Like you might have five people on staff that can just pump out a bunch of stuff all the time. You might not have anybody. You might have really good relationships with influencer folks or whatever. I, I don't think that is a solution where every advertiser is different. What I will say is I try to organize my creative testing 
and my organization of how I'm conducting my asset management around what I call concept. I want to know what types of sales pitches are working. I want to know what type of content am I producing? I want to know what are people latching onto? Because here's the thing. If I'm making the same sales pitch over and over again, I can make 20 different types of a sales pitch to sell a minivan. When you come into my car dealership and want to buy a sports car, I got nothing to say to you. That's a sale that I'm going to miss. At some point, there's no incrementality about solving the problem again and again and again. There's a good mix, but you need to have a blend of types of sales pitches and types of content, and you need to be taking risks. I allot a certain percentage of my overall budget that I consider a complete loss, where I test things that I am not supposed to do, whether it's 5% of my budget or 20. Yeah. I want to fail because that's where I've gotten really good is in finding the thing that was supposed to fail that ended up working out really well. Uh, and I can't tell you how many ideas I had, like the test drive for a car with a Facebook ad. When I told that to the CEO of the company, he looked at me <laughs> like I was from Mars. And I was like, look, yeah. all I'm going to do is make your phone ring at your car dealership. You're not even going to have to ring the phone. They're just going to come knocking on your door to try out your new car. Yeah. He's like, whatever, that's that's crazy. And you tried it and it worked. Yeah. You know, uh, and I think, those are the types of things, if you give yourself the opportunity to fail, you're giving yourself the opportunity to learn something that's gonna make you incrementally better than your competition. And yeah. innovation, I believe, ultimately is at the core of a lot of success. Outside of that, when I'm getting back to concepts, I wanna make sure that I'm appealing to several different types of customers in several different types of ways. Maybe you're really great at video content, but for that person yeah. that only looks at that, that will never watch a video, they're never going to see your ads. For somebody that only looks at still images and wants to click or not, you're never going to talk to them. And for what it's worth, going back to incrementality, I want to appeal to as many good customers as I can. And one customer might be better than another, but I'm not going to turn down good money. Yeah, Facebook's an ultimate, the ultimate amplifier of things that are already working. I love all the techniques that you've been sharing. What have you noticed, Charlie, in terms of average costs over the last year or so? Like average CPM, average CPC, average conversion rates, av averages and CPA, things so that, I know every industry is different, sure. but maybe just what, what have you noticed in terms of increases in each of these stats? And then how can people think about benchmarking? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question. I think ultimately there's a golden rule in that every year is more expensive than the last. When I started running Facebook ads, CPMs were like a dollar or two. Like I was spending a million dollars a day and my CPMs are like four or five bucks because I had a massive budget. Yeah. In 2009, I, it was 20 cents. That was the average CPM. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Like Those aren't the days anymore. <laughs> I wish it was like that. I thought I mean, $2 hey, was high. Yeah. Now yeah. it's what, $8? What are you seeing? Yeah. I mean, it, it could be anything across the board, you know? Um, and I do think this, every industry is different. I think what I try to look at more importantly than comparing myself to others is really trying to compare myself to my own historic benchmarks and understanding what success looks like for me. If my attention is more expensive, then I want to get better at the usage of that attention. In addition, I really, really try to steer people away from looking at metrics like CPC or CTR on platforms, because here's why. If you make a good piece of content, say you've got the best new Dennis U video and you blast it out there, 
ultimately it's an amplification of what works organically you might get great cpms and it can make it shown to 10 times as many people yeah. now maybe you get more clicks but that click the rate might plummet doesn't mean the ad is bad so there's a lot of context to that data that is really really important and so ultimately what i look at more than anything is allowable cost per target objective by platform and if there's less headroom I got to figure out what I can do to simplify my situation. At the end of the day, I think 90% of the problems that I face are because I was trying to be too smart or I'm solving a problem in a too complex of a way. I always like to make the joke. If you just do the next indicated action and you make things a little bit more complicated, a little more complicated, you're going to have a 42 stage device to flip a pancake. And I love Rude Goldberg stuff as YouTube videos, <laughs> but I don't want to run a business that way. Yeah. And I think it becomes very yeah. difficult. You know, you, solve a simplicity and eventually if you've hit the nth degree of what you can do then try to figure out another way of solving that problem or abandon that effort you know at the end of the day one of the easiest ways of raising your aov charge a dollar more for shipping that's not a facebook ads problem but i've done it and made an extra couple million dollars a year that's a simple solution that is not a better facebook ad that is just let me get a little bit extra cash simple Sometimes the easiest solution is is not overthinking stuff. Keep it simple. Yeah. What about things like like dollar a day, Charlie. What's been your experience in testing that? Yeah, I mean, I love the dollar a day stuff, and I I I I've been doing it myself, especially on Twitter more than on Facebook. For me, I am doing it on Facebook as well. I think for my market and where I'm advertising stuff for my own efforts my audience and where I'm able to create content that speaks to the person that is most likely to be a good customer for me. Facebook is not the right platform for me to acquire that customer at scale in the same way that the Twitter is. That being said, that's because of the way that I make the content. And I know plenty of people that are my, you know, my colleagues that would say the exact opposite. And I love it because that means there's opportunity for everyone. What I love about the dollar a day strategy and why I've been using it for a long time is at the end of the day, it gives you consistent feedback and consistently brings you new people. And if you're constantly understanding what people want to see from you and what works and you get that, I always think of it as a canary in the coal mine, right? If, if the thing that worked forever, all of a sudden stops working my dollar a day, that one, you might have nine things running and the best one from the last three months, all of a sudden tanks. I know I got to, I, I, whatever the next thing is, I got to pivot around that. And I use it way more for that canary in the coal mine effect. And also to let me know what my biggest opportunities are. For instance, I knew when I should start talking about chatbots and black Friday, because all of a sudden those view counts went through the roof. Now, historically, I know the time of year, but it was great to get that feedback from the platform. And for a dollar a day, it's really hard to not ROI on that investment because, I mean, it's a rounding error for half of my conversion objectives. Like, I can, I can afford it. And market research is fundamental. If you're not having an ongoing communication with your customers, you're only as good as you're guessing and you're going to lose. So we use dollar a day for personal branding and content testing when you have really small audiences. Mm -hmm. So B2B, we think is absolutely fantastic. And that's why I love connecting with folks like you, Charlie. I learned so much. All of our friends learned so much from spending time with you. Is there a question that you wish you were asked on a podcast? 
Oh, that's the question I was wished I was asked. That's so great. I like, I, I love it. Um, is there a question I wish that I was asked? If, if, if there's one question that I think that I'm not asked enough and, and that is, is great is what can somebody do to like, what is the motivation that people have on a day-to-day -day basis? Like what is getting somebody going, especially when things are hard? Yeah. And, and that for me was really big because, you know, when I started getting into this field, like I pivoted my career in my late twenties. I was a radio guy and a touring musician until I was basically almost 30. And, and my parents were paying my bills. And so I had this chip on my shoulder of like consistently trying to provide more opportunity and to give back to folks. So it, what motivates me is the fact that I'm able to make my target audience more confident and more successful. And as a result, I'm able to pay my mortgage and to provide for my family. Mm. And knowing that I had to be the burden on that family for a long, long time is that monkey on my back that motivates me every time I wake up in the middle of the night, it, while it's like, how do I make more money? It's also, what problem am I not solving for folks? And I try to talk to them all the time and figure out exactly what I can do to make things easier for people. Because I don't think people have the same opportunity like we did coming in where there was way less competition in the marketplace. And nobody knew what they were doing and, and innovators were, were setting the standard. So yeah. that's the question for me is, is the motivation because I think there's, a, to be honest, I think there's a really toxic culture of just more money and hustle and everything else. And when we talk about motivation, it allows mm. people to relate to others that might also have that where they're like, look, I don't want to work 20 hours a day. Yeah. How can I be successful? Cause that's what everybody says. And it's like, you know, that doesn't have to be it. My motivation is actually, I'm inherently lazy. I want to work less and less and less, provide more yeah. and more opportunity. Like, how do I do that? And so yeah. that for me is what can allow me to relate to more and more people. Man, I madly respect your why, Charlie. Even though you're a super duper pro with Facebook ads and optimizing and scaling, the, the thing that I believe causes you to really stand out is that you share in your story of where you've come from in the last 10 years to be able to help other business owners scale is something that I think causes you to really stand out. Well, thank so, you very and much. To you, my friend. I appreciate that. I think um, I, 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 I really appreciate you saying that, man. I, I, I uh, everyone has a why. That one's mine. And your new microphone. You right? Great? Look at this wonderful thing. I've been giving you a shout out occasionally on some. So there's gonna be YouTube videos all week long where I'm giving you a shout out to you and the fine folks at Road who uh, like to tweet, which is great. Yeah, there you go. You're building relationships. Now that's where so you can call their day. Honestly. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you, or on LinkedIn or whatever, targeting people that work at Road. All right. So one quick question that I always like to ask people, especially when they're polished and professional like you, name 10 things that begin with the letter P. Okay. 10 things that begin with the letter P. Let's yep. go food stuff. I love it first. Let's go pizza. Let's go. It shouldn't go on pizza, which is pineapple. That's a hard take, but I'll take it. Uh, let's also go with pie. Love, love a good pie. Indeed. Let's also go with polenta. That's another fun one, right? All right. Let's maybe pivot here. We can go for peaches, right? That's another good one. We can go for pecans. That's another really fun one, right? Okay. If we're continuing down this road, we can go for places and planets and people. And maybe we can also uh, adjust little things like photographs, which I really love. And oh, if we want man. anything else, we can say Boom. there's a plethora of other opportunities. Oh, bonus. 
Charlie, <laughs> you are one of the only people I've seen not stumble. Most people they run out of gas at five. Or oh six. no, I got I got energy for days. It's the old it's the old radio kid in me, you know. Yeah, uh, bro. I appreciate that. So how can people find out more about you? Sure. So, I mean, you can follow me on any social thing. It's at CT the Disruptor. Um, that's my channel on everything. Um, I also have a website, FacebookDisruptor.com, and I think that's my brand. I, I didn't realize it at the time, but. Um, very few other Facebook disruptors are in the education space and half of the other Facebook disruptors are students of mine. Mm. And so I just put it out there initially as just like, let me find the other people. And then I realized <laughs> I was the only one teaching because the rest of them honestly are getting really good paychecks and running really good brands. And my why was different than theirs. So if you look up Facebook disruptor, you're going to either get this links to the elite group of advertisers or you're going to get to see me. Amen. Yeah, Charlie, it has been an honor to have you on the Coach You Show. Thank you so much. I can't wait for people to implement the strategy that you've just shared. Well, thank you so much. It's an honor to do this. You know, I can do anything on my Sunday afternoon and spending it talking to you. Seems like a pretty good use of my time and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much. It is not lost on me that you could have anybody here. You chose me and I appreciate that. Well, you've got a lot of amazing things to share and I can't wait to be one of your top promoters and cheerleaders. I love it. Thank I love friend. it. Thank you.